Welcome to Going Viral, a podcast all about the viruses that spread infectious disease. I'm Mark Honigsbaum, a medical historian specialising in pandemics. And in this episode, I'll be examining the origins of COVID-19 and why we fail to heed the warnings about coronaviruses. In 1959, the medical researcher René Dubot wrote that microbial disease is one of the inevitable consequences of life in a world where nothing is stable. Instead, he urged scientists to develop an alertness to the unexpected. My guest today epitomizes these principles. Peter Daszak is a British zoologist and disease ecologist. He's also president of EcoHealth Alliance, a New York-based nonprofit that scours the world's disease hotspots in search of viruses with the potential to cause pandemics. In the process, Peter has identified scores of new viruses and documented millions of so-called spillover events. You're talking about one to seven million people a year getting infected by bat coronaviruses. Right now, we've got scientific evidence that that happens. That's an incredible number of people. Yet for all that Peter has been warning that any one of these viruses could be the next disease X and the trigger for a global pandemic, his warnings have gone unheeded. The overwhelming body of infectious disease specialists around the world were saying this is going to be a pandemic. It probably already is. There is no excuse for that inaction. Well, hello, Peter, and welcome to Going Viral. So for our listeners who don't know who you are or all the things you've done in your amazing career, could you just tell us a little bit about the beginnings of your involvement with conservation medicine? Well, I, I've always been interested in wildlife since I was a kid in the UK, and um, it was my goal to be a zoologist. That's what I wanted to be. That was my vision. And at university, I ended up picking a research project and I was kind of late in the day to get there. You know, all the good ones had gone. The other one left was parasites of gallbladders of reptiles. Well, that seems really boring. But it's actually fascinating. And I, and I just got into this idea that, you know, there are these organisms that live within us and with animals and just look at us as um, things to infect and move on. And they just sort of don't mind if they kill a few on the way. And I became fascinated by that concept. And when I came to the US, I was waiting for my work visa. I volunteered at CDC, Centers for Disease Control. There was an outbreak of Nipah virus from fruit bats that was killing people in Malaysia. And I ended up working on some of those samples. And again, it's just bizarre to me that a bat virus was killing people and could become a pandemic. And here we are, you know, exactly that's happened. And I'm huddled down in my house outside New York, hiding from a bat origin virus. I believe that the EcoHealth Alliance, its roots lie in the Wildlife Preservation Trust, which was set up by that well-known British conservationist, Gerald Durrell. We think that what happened was about 45 years ago, Jerry Durrell was really well-known. He's a, an author and well-loved in the UK and Europe and came to the US and did some lecture tours and people started donating money. And he set up an organization here to manage the funds and funnel it through to conservation programs. I took over as um, president of that organization about a, 10 years ago. We've done so much work on the health implications of environmental change, ecological issues around the world, that that became the dominant set of programs we were working on. And we changed name and became EcoHealth Alliance and focused entirely on that. I looked at your Twitter feed and I noticed that you have a pinned tweet there from the 24th of March. And you say in it, people keep saying that COVID-19 is a black swan event, completely unexpected. 
you've posted a link to an article that appeared in Science in 2013. Just tell us about that tweet and why you did that. It's kind of a, a frustrating in a way. I mean, for 20 years, we've been saying that pandemics are predictable and therefore preventable. That there, there is a growing, uh, you know, there's a rise in the frequency of, of pandemics over time. Um, but there's enough time between each one that we kind of forget about them and we don't bother about them. But we can actually pinpoint the places on the planet where emerging diseases are most likely to come from. We can work out which species of wildlife carry the viruses that are most likely to get into us and become pandemic. So we've been raising the flag on, on a certain group of viruses, coronaviruses, um, in a certain group of wildlife, bats, from Southeast Asia for 15 years and saying these are a clear and present danger of pandemics. Uh, we've talked about the wildlife trade and how that needs to be changed and, and suppressed and, and eventually stopped if we're going to prevent pandemics. We've talked about how they spread through airline travel. We, we track these things and we've been speaking openly for 20 years about it. And you've also been warning specifically that a coronavirus could emerge from bats. I mean, this was shortly before the current COVID outbreak, right? Yeah, we've been saying very specifically bat origin coronaviruses in China are a high risk of becoming the next pandemic. Now, when you say that at the time, 10 years ago, five years ago, it's a warning. It's, it's, it's a wake up call. We need to do something about that. What we didn't want to happen is for this pandemic to emerge, spread and become the horrifying global phenomenon that it is. When you say these things, you're not just speaking without specific knowledge. I really want you to describe for our listeners, if you can, what it is you do in your day job, as it were, at the EcoHealth Alliance. You're something of a virus hunter. Would that be fair? Well, that's one of the things we do. I mean, look, we're, we're out there doing science. So we, our organization is a science-based nonprofit. We have scientific researchers. We have mathematicians. We have mathematical models. We have veterinarians, medics, who, and, and ecologists who go out around the world and look at wildlife and try and find the viruses that they carry that could become the next pandemic. We work with, with we have anthropologists who work with communities on the front line in emergency hotspots who ask them what behaviors they do that could lead to that virus getting into the human population. We work with companies that are doing mining and deforestation in these areas and try and show them the economic impacts of what they're doing and work with them to reduce their footprint. And then we get out to those places and build capacity and try and do something about it. So we do the science and we use the science to try and change policy. Peter, could you just sort of take our listeners, as it were, inside some of these uh, environments, these caves in southern China, and tell us how it is that you collect information on these viruses that live in these remote animal reservoirs? Yeah, we've started looking at SARS as an example of uh, it's a typical emerging disease, the original SARS. It came from wildlife and it got into people through a process of us making contact with wildlife, in this case, the wildlife trade. So in, in 2003, 2004, we went out to China and worked with uh, local scientists to try and understand which animals in those markets are likely to be carrying these viruses and where do they come from? We're talking about wet markets, so-called wet markets. Yeah, these aren't like um, in um, plastic packs for us to eat frozen down. These are live animals, different species and small cages on top of each other, sold to you live or killed right in front of you, cut up right in front of you. The guts are thrown on the floor. There are people milling around these markets. There are people who live there. I mean, you know, some of those, the big markets where SARS emerged, the, the index market, the first market where SARS first spilled over, 
people actually lived in the markets. You know, they had sort of apartments right there. Kids would come home from school and do the homework and watch TV right next to the animals as people are cutting them up. These are an incredible place for a virus to spread. So our, our goal was to say, if SARS came out of this market, which species and where did they come from? Because we, we believed SARS could still be out there in wildlife waiting to emerge again. And it turned out that was true. It turned out that bats were the reservoir and that all across southern China and, and in countries neighboring China, bats carry SARS-related coronaviruses, some of which we know now can get into people's cells, into human cells in the lab. We know that they can cause SARS-like disease. We showed a few years ago that one virus in particular in bats could cause SARS-like disease in a mouse model in the lab and evaded vaccines that were being developed for SARS and evaded therapies that were being developed for SARS. So, you know, this really is, um, it's as good as you could get in terms of predicting this was going to happen. Uh, some people listened, you know, WHO, for instance, put SARS-related coronaviruses on their list of the, uh, the most important pandemic pathogens to develop drugs and vaccines for. CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Initiative, started work on therapeutics and vaccines against SARS, even when that virus wasn't in the human population. And thanks to some of those initiatives, we can move quicker to vaccines now. But others didn't listen. I, I'd like to come to that in a second, but just a little bit more on you know the actual process. It sounds like quite dangerous work because you're potentially putting yourself or the other scientists in risk way by collecting blood and I believe fecal samples as well from these caves where bats hang out. Yeah, when we go to a bat cave to do sampling, we're extremely careful, obviously. I mean, these, these animals do carry lethal viruses. Now, we know that now. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it was less clear. And, um, you know, there are plenty of bat biologists who even now go into caves without appropriate protection. And when, in some of the caves we work in, tourists go in there. People go in there to prey or to hunt or to collect birds' nests for birds' nest soup. And they don't wear masks and gloves. We wear um, Tyvek suits with those white suits you'll see, sort of hazmat suits. We wear masks, gloves. And what we do is we, we, first of all, we go in the cave during the day and try and look at what bat colonies are present in the cave. And then set up outside, we set up mist nets, the type that are used to catch birds. Bats fly into them on the way out to feed at night. And each bat we then take out of the net. We wear really big gloves to do that. And we take samples, fecal samples, blood samples, swabs of the saliva. And then really importantly, what we do then is we release them because, you know, we're a conservation organization too. And we're trying not to deplete the population of bats. They do very important work for us in the environment, getting rid of pest insects, for instance. One of the most astonishing facts I learned uh, talking to you for my book, uh, The Pandemic Century, is that bats make up one fifth of all the mammals on the planet, is that right? Yeah, it's, it's, it is surprising to know that. Now, I think the reason we don't really appreciate that is because they're out there at night. I mean, we see wildlife during the day. We see birds mainly. We see mammals occasionally. But bats are out there flying around at night. We, we see the occasional one flitting around at, at sunset. If you go to a place like Malaysia, for instance, and you, um, you go to the countryside of Malaysia and you sit on the edge of a river with a street lamp nearby, You'll, all night long, you'll see bats flitting past of all different shapes and sizes, eating insects. They're extremely abundant in some place, extremely diverse, and so are their viruses. So let's come on to this question of where we think this coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, to give its uh, official name, where do we think it emerged from? What does the virological and genomic evidence tell us? Because 
you must be aware there are all these bizarre conspiracy theories floating around. Conspiracy theories fill a gap, and they fill a gap in our understanding, especially in the richer developed countries of the West, on the human connection to wildlife. If you go to places in rural Southeast Asia, people are living traditional lifestyles often, and they're eating wildlife, and wildlife are abundant and diverse. And it's pretty logical. If you're a poor farmer in Southeast Asia, and you've got a bat cave nearby with some tasty bats, you go in there and you get a long stick with spikes, you spike them, you take them home, cook them up. It's free protein. So the interface between humans and wildlife, especially in the tropics, is very extensive. There's wildlife are very abundant, very diverse. You know, that's what I think we, we don't really appreciate. And, and that's why these conspiracy theories take hold. Now, you can tell from looking at the genetic sequence of this virus that it's a bat origin virus. The closest known relative is from a bat. It's one that we found in 2013. We have the genetic sequence. We don't have the virus um, in culture yet. It's different enough to SARS-CoV-2 that it isn't the origin of SARS-CoV-2, but it's, it is fairly close. It's like a cousin of SARS-CoV-2. When we go out and look for viruses, we target certain groups. Now, we were targeting SARS-related viruses. We found about 50 viruses related to SARS. Some of them, even 98% identical, can't infect human cells. So with this virus, we expect there will be dozens of related viruses in bats, one of which will be the progenitor, the origin of this pandemic. We've not yet found that. It will be found, I'm sure. We don't yet know which bat species it will be. It'll probably be an insectivorous bat, and it will probably either be in southwest China or in one of the neighboring countries like Myanmar, Laos. We'll be out there looking for it very soon. Now, here at the White House on Thursday, President Trump also said that he has seen credible evidence that the virus actually originated in a lab in Wuhan, China, but he gave no further details. We're looking at exactly where it came from, who it came from, how it happened. And my question is, have you seen anything at this point that gives you a high degree of confidence that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was the origin of this virus? Yes, I have. Yes, I have. And what gives you a high degree of confidence that this originated from the Wuhan Institute of Virology? I can't tell you that. I'm not allowed to tell you that. I really want to see if we can nail this canard that it could have been an escape from a laboratory in Wuhan, either deliberately engineered or an accidental escape. Uh, Donald Trump has recently raised this. I've heard even some of my students say the governments have engineered it and they wouldn't let journalists publish the truth anyway. Yeah. So really, a lot of people believe these conspiracy theories. They're a very difficult thing to shake off. They rely on the well-known scientific problem that we can't prove a negative. We can't ever go back in time and show that this virus spilling over to a person. And you can't see them anyway. And we can't go back into a lab and show that this did not happen. But what you can do is look at the balance of evidence. In rural Yunnan, we sampled people and found that 3% of them had antibodies to bat viruses about two years ago. And if you extrapolate that population across the whole of the range of the bats that carry these viruses, you're talking about one to seven million people a year getting infected by bat coronaviruses right now, every year. That's happening, that we've got scientific evidence that that happens. That's an incredible number of people. Now, most of those viruses are probably not going to cause a pandemic, but some of them may have caused illness. Some of them may have caused the outbreaks. This often happens. Compare that number of people to the number of people working in a lab, for instance, a few dozen. The people in the lab wear gloves 
and mass. The people in rural China and, and other countries are out there being exposed to bats every day. They dig feces out of bat caves and spread it on their vegetables. They use bat feces as traditional medicine. They eat bats. They catch them, kill them, cut them up. That's a real obvious way a virus can spread. And I think that if you think about those two interfaces, one's really obvious and we've got scientific evidence for, one is not and we don't. So I'm going to go with the one that does. Besides anything else, why on earth would the Chinese deliberately release something that that sort of tanked their economy and locked down Wuhan and 11 other cities? It's just um, highly improbable. So can I just be clear on that? I mean, it could not be a lab release of an engineered virus, though. It would be the actual wild virus itself taken from the bat and then accidentally gets out. Well, the reason I'm you know, very confident that's not true is because nobody had this virus in the lab prior to the outbreak. If they did, then when they published the data and pushed and rushed and, and aggressively competed to get the best paper out there, they would have shown that we already had this virus in the lab and here it is. Now, if, if there was an accident they discovered that, I don't think they would have been out there openly saying, here we are, we're, we're publishing this sequence and, and, and getting that out to the public. You know, and I've worked with these labs for 15 years. I've never, ever heard anything uh, from anyone working in those labs that sounds like they're hiding information or lying or being deceitful. These are really good people doing really good work, trying to develop vaccines and drugs that we now need to help cure ourselves in the face of this pandemic. Okay, well, look, thank you so much for clearing that up. I have to say, I very much doubt it will put pay to all these conspiracy theories. (laughs) (laughs) I really doubt I've cleared anything up. I mean, the conspiracy theorists are out there pushing an anti-China agenda for political gain. It's not going to go away. And at the same time, we have a Chinese government that is very authoritarian and is willing to push its own conspiracy theories to to fight back. Um, It's a shame that in the middle of this geopolitical war is a real pandemic with real people dying. And the one thing you need in a pandemic is open communication with the country that got it first, China, where they know how to beat back this pandemic. And the country that now has it in the worst way possible, the US, is quite ironic and and really unfortunate. Early on in this pandemic, you wrote a very prominent comment piece in the New York Times explaining why you thought the the COVID-19 virus was a disease X. So can you just take us through it? Because my understanding is that it does share quite a few of its genes with SARS-1, the classic SARS that emerged in 2002. Yeah, I mean, um, disease X was a term that came out of a World Health Organization group that I'm part of that that's looking for ways to stop the next pandemic. And the X is the sort of, you know, the scientific, when we write an equation, X is the unknown in the equation. So we're really talking about future diseases are not going to be ones we already know. They're going to be ones we've not yet discovered. And when they emerge, we discover them the hard way. And it makes us really vulnerable because what we're seeing right now with this pathogen is we don't have any vaccines yet. We don't have any drug treatments. Uh, We didn't even know what it was at the beginning of the outbreak. And not only that, this disease looks like others. It causes uh, pneumonia. um, So does flu. So does uh, other respiratory uh, pathogens. They can hide in our populations for quite some time and cause a lot of problems before they're discovered. So, you know, this virus is similar to SARS in many ways. It's, um, it's part of the same clade, the same group of coronaviruses. Um, it's about 20% different across its whole ge- genomic sequence. But if you think about, you know, I'm 
1% different to a chimpanzee, but um, clearly I hope that we're sufficiently different so we would recognize each other as different. Um, viruses do, um, you know, 20% different is about the same. It means it's a different species of virus. And what we're looking at is a virus that has, therefore, different characteristics. It's got a 1% to 3% mortality rate instead of a 10% mortality rate that SARS had. But it does cause similar respiratory diseases. What's really um, important about SARS-CoV-2 is that it has this capacity to spread much more effectively than SARS. When I get infected, I begin to shed virus. I begin to become transmissible to other people quicker than SARS, uh, often before I've got symptoms. So I don't even know I'm infected. And I'm out there walking around infecting other people. And that's the real issue with SARS-CoV-2. And it also means because it's related but different, that some of the vaccines and drugs that people were beginning to work on for SARS don't always work for viruses that are 20% different. We need to be working with a much broader approach because the next pandemic will be something different. So let's start designing approaches to prevent something different. And that can mean you know, things like behavioral um, uh, programs in countries that are at very high risk of emerging diseases to work with communities and try and get them to do things in a less risky way and give them incentives um, to do things like reduce hunting and eating of wildlife or um, you know, work with companies that are building roads into forests for mines or for palm oil production and say, look, this is a high risk of a new pandemic. You need, if you're going to put workers in this, this place in a remote area, that you'll need a clinic, you'll need to test them regularly. Farmers and these sorts of activities on the edge of our um, urban sprawls in, in emergency hotspots, need, we need to start protecting ourselves against these. Similarly, um, when, we, when we're designing vaccines, let's not just have vaccines to the last disease to emerge 10 years ago, in this case SARS, where there's really no market for that vaccine because SARS went away. And there's no interest from drug companies to push that. Let's start designing universal vaccines against SARS and all of its relatives. Uh, Ebola and all of its relatives. We already have a program for the universal flu vaccine. Let's do this for other viral groups too. Part of doing that will be to find out what viruses are out there. Now, we did some work on trying to predict that. We, we predicted 1.7 million unknown viruses in wildlife. We were expecting tens of millions, a really un, unbeatable number. I mean, look, we're discovering viruses at an incredible clip right now because of advances in genome sequencing and, and the ability to get out to places and do really high-quality field work and get these samples. We estimate that to discover the majority of them, about 70%, will cost about $1.2 billion. It's a huge amount of money. But put that into uh, perspective against one single outbreak right now that's costing trillions of dollars. So doing things to discover the threat that's out there I think it's fundamental to preventing that from happening. So what's your view about China's response to COVID-19? Could they have done more? What China did was the correct thing. In fact, what China did was something quite um, radical. They locked down Wuhan, but they also locked down the whole country prior to the Lunar New Year celebration, where I think three billion individual trips were planned. It's a huge disruption of the most important holiday of the year. Um, I thought that was, I didn't think that was going to happen. We all knew that it would be good if they did that, but we didn't think that they, that they would do it. And it, so I think that they did their best. And looking at SARS, it probably would have worked for SARS 
SARS was less able to spread this virus, unfortunately. It looks like it already got out. I mean, it was already in Thailand, I think, on January the 12th or 13th. And there's evidence that there were cases walking around in the US and in Europe in you know mid-January. So nobody knew at the time that this virus was had such an ability to spread. I think what we did fail on is the rest of the world didn't use that two months of January and February to get prepared. I mean, what a mistake. Um, I think a lot of us thought that China would control it. If we'd got a more clear warning from China that they knew there was significant human-to-human transmission, maybe that would have helped. But I do think that many countries, including the US, were just woefully slow to act. You know, and we have a president who went out there and said, it's not a problem. The cases will go up. They'll go down again in a few days. I think he said it, it'll, it'll disappear. It'll be a miracle. You'll see it'll disappear or something like <laughs> Well, it would have been a miracle had that happened. Uh, sadly, it didn't happen. Look, it, you know, it's, it's, the unfortunate thing is, you know, presidents and prime ministers um, around the world have intelligence agencies that were telling them about this and how important this is going to be. They have health experts that they consult regularly that were telling them about this. The overwhelming body of infectious disease specialists around the world were saying this is going to be a pandemic. It probably already is. There is no excuse for that inaction. Yes, it's politically difficult to close down your economy, but um, we have a prime minister in the UK who was actually infected by this, and possibly because he was out there trying to show that you can go out and socially mix in the face of this pandemic. It's not a big deal. Well, it is a big deal, and we know that now, and I think that some people failed, and they failed in a way that cost lives, unfortunately. Can you tell us how many coronaviruses you've discovered in the last five whatever years? Secondly, based on what we know about the size of populations, how many more do you think might be out there waiting to be discovered? We estimate that the total number of coronaviruses likely to be in bats around the world is going to be something of the order of 10 to 20,000. It's a lot, but you know we could go out there and find them all. It would take three or four years um, with a concerted effort, a few tens of millions of dollars. I think it's something we really need to do. And if this group of viruses from this group of animals is going to be a risk of future pandemics that cost trillions, let's invest the money, let's find them, let's get the genetic sequences. We don't need to have them all in labs around the world, which is a risk. We can use the sequences to help expand the vaccine development so that they cover the unknowns as well as the knowns. We're not only talking about coronaviruses here because we've also got Nipah and Ebola, right? Yeah, well, we've got Nipah, Ebola, Hendra, you know, Marburg, many, many other viruses yet to be discovered from bats and other species of wildlife. We expect that out of the 1.7 million unknown viruses in those mammal groups, that probably half a million or so, will have the capacity to infect people based on what we know to date. But, you know, that's, that's a number we could go out and discover over the next 10 years. We could really get a grip on what the global risk is and then start to build programs not just to respond to pandemics, but to actually prevent them. I really want you to paint a picture of what it is that we're doing wrong in terms of putting pressure on these animal habitats? You know, what are the factors in terms of, you know, displacing traditional farming, having these, these mass farms, pushing people onto uncultivated land? What we need to do to change it and rebalance our world? 
the things that drive pandemic risk are places on the planet where people are in very dense populations, especially in areas with high wildlife diversity, because the wildlife carry the viruses that could become pandemics. And most importantly, where we're doing things to the environment that bring us into contact with wildlife. On a global scale, land use change is a significant correlate to emerging disease risk. Now, land use change is a very complex issue, but it's essentially getting into a tropical forest where lots of species live, building a road, setting up a logging camp, converting the land to agriculture, livestock production, and eventually towns. That process drives people and wildlife into contact and allows their viruses to get into us. Those remote logging camps are connected with one day's travel by road to a city, which is connected by one day's flight by plane to everywhere else on the planet. We've shown over and over again that wherever a virus emerges, it will travel through the air travel system to the richest countries on the planet that do the most travel, including the European countries, China and the UK and the US. So we, we're at a really most vulnerable point in our history for pandemic emergence because of those factors. So how are we going to change that? I mean, I think that what we really need to recognize is that you know pandemics originate in places that are usually remote and often in uh, developing countries. So people in the richer countries in the north think that it's an over-there issue. It's something that comes from Africa occasionally or Southeast Asia. It's not our problem. Well, actually, it is our problem because of our connectivity to those places and because we cause it. Uh, the reason that people are building roads into forests in Africa to set a mining camp up is because our cell phones have rare earth elements that need that mine to go out and mine them. And the reason that we've got incredible rates of deforestation to the point where people are getting sick with, you know, eutrophication of rivers and pollution and species going extinct in places like Borneo is because of our demand here in the West for palm oil. And that's just one of many, many things that drive this process. Consumption drives uh, encroachment into wildlife areas by development for livestock production, agriculture, and commodities that drives pandemic risk. So let's start doing things in a more sensible and smart way. Let's build programs to reduce that risk by being more sustainable in the way we develop, by being more sustainable in the way we consume, and do it in a way that we account for the benefits. Because if, if pandemics can crash our economy globally, then there's a real economic incentive to preventing them. Let's account for that. Let's let's celebrate the people who reduce the, the amount of meat they eat. Let's celebrate the people who, you know, purchase an expensive hybrid vehicle to reduce carbon dioxide output. Because eventually we're going to benefit from that economically and for our health. And um, that's a good thing. We may not notice it straight away, but our, our future will be healthier and better if we start to become more sustainable right now. And there's a certain urgency to that. Listening to you describe the connections between animal health and human health and, and the environment, I'm reminded that this year started with these terrible wildfires in Australia. And, you know, not long after that, we had dramatic floods all over the world, including throughout Britain. And it seems to me that as awful and as devastating the, this outbreak has been to the world economy, you could also look at it as a kind of wake-up call because the much worse existential crisis that will still be hanging over us is climate change. 
it's not gone unnoticed by many of us that this sort of global pause we're in right now, where we've stopped airline travel, nobody's driving much. We suddenly can see the Himalayas from northern India, where we couldn't for the last 10 years. We suddenly can see the bottom of the rivers in Venice, where we couldn't before. That's incredible to me. That's got to be a wake-up call that there is a better future out there. Now, look, I'm, I'm not naive. I, By the way, I enjoy flying in planes. I enjoy driving cars. I drink wine and eat meat. And I'm not talking about losing all of that. I'm not talking about such a radical shift in our lifestyle that we can't do the things that we, we've become used to. We can just do them better. We can do them less and we can do them better and do them smarter. You know, there is a return on investment for that. Uh, you know, it will cost us a little bit. Um, hybrid cars are expensive. Uh, but the return on investment is we won't die from a pandemic. And I think that's a pretty damn significant return on investment. One of my personal heroes is René Dubot, who was, you know, French-born scientist, uh, spent most of his career at the Rockefeller Institute in New York, was actually the first medical researcher to discover a commercial antibiotic. But later in his life, of course, he became um, a sort of a figurehead for the then environmental uh, movement. And he famously coined the phrase, think globally, act locally. And 70 years ago, in one of his most famous books, René Dubot observed that microbial disease, infectious disease in other words, is one of the inevitable consequences of life in a world where nothing is stable. And then he went on to, to give this warning or this message to scientists and medical researchers. They really needed to develop what he called an, an alertness to the unexpected. So I think this goes very much to the point we're going to be making about disease X is that as much as we know, there's still so much we can't see that might be lying just out of our vision. I think that scientists, we ourselves, trick ourselves into thinking that we've got the answers. We've got such a high-tech solution for, pan for pathogens these days. It's, it's all about tinkering in the lab with genetic code and, and designing these microarrays that test lots of things against lots of other things. At the same time, why is it that no one's actually gone out and found how diverse these viruses are and how many there are out there? We've known about SARS for 15 years. We're the only organization that's been in China looking for other coronaviruses for that time. That, to me, is incredible. We know that viruses that are related to Nipah virus exist in Africa, and very few people have been working on A few people have, but only a handful have been working on the risk of those emerging. We're just to my mind, running blindly through a forest, waiting to hit a tree trunk and hopefully wake up this time. I think that the, the issue of the unknowns is really important. You know, the, the idea that we're at this sort of fundamental time when we can learn a lesson from this pandemic, and the pandemic is caused by us. We are behind the pandemic. We're part of the problem. That means we can be part of the solution. You know, if pandemics are caused by us, that gives us the power to control our future and reduce risk. Let's actually do that this time instead of thinking, don't worry, there'll be a vaccine soon. Just sit tight in your house and let's hope. That's not a strategy. So what should we do about the trade in wild animals? Should we put pressure on China to close its wet markets? Yeah, a lot of conservation groups are now um, talking about banning the wildlife trade. And to people in the West or the richer countries in the North, well, we don't really have much of a 
wildlife trade, not in the same way. It sounds like a simple and clean solution. Uh, China has already said they're going to ban the wildlife trade. But we saw, we've seen this before. During, after SARS, China said they were going to close the markets. They did close some markets. It's really difficult to shift 5,000 years of culture in an instant. And I don't think that a ban is the solution. I think that we all want to get to a place where wildlife are not consumed at this scale for food. But in some countries, there is no other nutritional source, so it's necessary. So calling to ban it is not correct for those countries. It's not going to work. Similarly, if, if you make this illegal and police it, it simply will drive it underground in places where there's a strong cultural desire to eat wildlife. People will carry on doing it, and if there's an outbreak from it, we will then have real trouble finding it. So I think there are many other solutions. Increase the policing of the trade, allow others to carry on that can be farmed, make those farms biosecure so they don't spread pathogens. You know, and I'm reminded that, you know, I'm from the UK. We eat wildlife in the UK. In fact, we value it so highly. It's kind of a food of the rich and posh to eat grouse or pheasant. We eat wildlife in the US. We eat deer meat and we eat fish. So next time you're tucking into that main lobster, just think about you're eating wildlife right there and then. There's a way to do this without blindly calling for bans. One of the pandemics I've studied in a lot of detail, of course, is the 1918 to 1919 Spanish influenza pandemic. And a lot of the, the planning around pandemics leading up to this was predicated on that being a worst case scenario and the kind of template for pandemic planning. But it's really taken 100 years for us to see something of equal magnitude. But one of the findings, I think, from your research is that these emergence events, these epidemic and possibly pandemic events seem to be happening more frequently. Are pandemics the new normal? Absolutely. We're in the pandemic era right now. We're in the Anthropocene, where we're seeing exponential growth of our population, our ecological footprint as a product of that. You know, many benefits, um, exponential growth in health in other aspects of our lives, uh, exponential growth in some very unpleasant things like uh, climate change, obesity, degradation, extinction, and pandemics. It's a direct product of the Anthropocene. And yes, you're right. It's been 100 years since, uh, or more, since 1918 influenza. But we did have a pandemic halfway along that line, which was HIV-AIDS. Much more insidious than, than COVID-19. It infected, so far, about 40 million people. These things are particularly unpleasant when they happen and uh, cause a lot of misery, um, huge economic loss and death. It's just, to my mind, untenable that we can be sitting here waiting for the next one. Let's wake up, get out there, and stop them happening. No sooner had we recorded this interview than Peter received some surprising news when the US government announced it was terminating funding for his bat research project. The National Institutes of Health gave no reason for its decision. Since 2015, EcoHealth Alliance had received two grants from the NIH worth over $6 million. But the suspicion was it had something to do with the fact that the EcoHealth Alliance had collaborated with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and Peter was on record defending the integrity of Chinese scientists. That put him on a collision course with the Trump administration, following the president's statement at an April 17th press conference that he would be checking to see if any US government money was slated for the Wuhan Institute. Five days later, Daszak learned NIH had released a statement saying his project no longer aligned with the agency's, quote, program goals and priorities. 
Thank you for listening to Going Viral, The COVID Files. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our series and recommend Going Viral to your friends. We'd also like to hear your views and we'd love for you to rate us too. Follow us on Twitter at goingviral underscore pod or on Instagram at goingviral underscore the podcast. Our producer is Melissa Fitzgerald and this has been The COVID Files.